All right, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 13. And Lord willing, we'll be uh, finishing uh, this section in the book of Acts. As uh, Paul is in the, uh, the middle of his first missionary journey. And he's up at uh, Pisidian Antioch. And we're going to conclude... Uh, his ministry there in that city before he moves on to Iconium, which is the next city that he'll uh, go to and preach. So uh, we'll be looking at uh, verses 48 through 52 this morning. So I'll read this passage for you. And just remind you that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training and righteousness that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good deed. So we're reading the inspired Word of God and what a blessing it is to be able to do it. Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the Word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So what we've seen basically is that the Apostle Paul and Barnabas started out from Antioch and they sailed over to the island of Cyprus. They preached there. They saw the, the uh, conversion of the Greek proconsul there on the island. And then they sailed up to the area of Perga and made a beeline up to Antioch, another Antioch. This is Antioch in Pisidia rather than Antioch in Syria. So there's two different Antiochs. And here he begins to preach. So he shows up on a synagogue, and we've seen this a couple weeks ago, preached a phenomenal message where he reviewed the Old Testament history of Israel, the covenants. He comes from basically the patriarchs to the, to the monarchs. He stops at David, King David, and from there he launches into Jesus Christ. And he connects Christ as the son of David. He talks about his death, his burial, his resurrection. He quotes three Old Testament passages in support of the bodily resurrection. And then he concludes with another Old Testament passage saying that if you do not repent and believe the message I'm preaching to you, then you will experience the mighty works of God in anger and wrath. So at this point, he is, uh, he is presented a gospel of liberty and freedom. Thank you, brother. I ran off and forgot my notes again this morning. So he was uh, preaching this gospel of, of liberty and freedom that anyone who believes 
regardless of whether or not you're circumcised or not, regardless of whether or not you've, you've become a, a, a Gentile God-fearer and accommodated yourself to certain rites of Judaism, regardless of that, those who believe, Jew and Gentile, can now receive the full forgiveness of their sins, the gift of righteousness, and be delivered from the curse and condemnation of the law of Moses. Now this was a message that uh, obviously would have bothered the Jews. What? Our gifts of the Holy Spirit? Our gifts of salvation from our God and through our Messiah is now being freely given to Gentiles without them first having to become Jews? So this would have alarmed them. Because Paul's Gospel therefore was basically undermining their traditions and their understanding of the law of God. So last week we saw how his gospel provoked the Jews to jealousy. And obviously this is going to launch a great persecution against uh, the apostles. But now we saw last week how the Jews responded. Some of them came to faith. But many of them did not. So now this morning, we're going to look at how did the Gentiles respond to the gospel that, that Paul preached to them. And uh, basically, when you raise that issue, uh, you begin to ask yourself the question, what, what more fundamentally, on a fundamental level, causes a sinner, any sinner, to come to faith in Jesus Christ? What is it that caused so many people like uh, Abraham, the Aramean, who was an idolater and worshipped pagan gods, what caused him to forsake the worship of his own pagan gods in the Ur of the Chaldeans and to follow the God of Israel, who would become the God of Israel, Yahweh, and to follow this path, the instructions, hundreds and hundreds of miles to a new land, What caused him to do that? What caused the Moabitess widow Ruth to leave her homeland and follow her mother-in-law to a foreign land and to worship God? What caused that evil king of Judah, King Manasseh, who set his idols in the temple and built the altars throughout the land of Israel, who sacrificed his own son to the pagan gods. And yet at the end of his life, he repented and was restored. What caused that change of heart in evil King Manasseh? What causes the, the wealth, wealthy and affluent businesswoman, a seller of purple fabrics named Lydia, to hear the Gospel and believe? What caused you to come to faith in Jesus Christ? What turned the lights on into your darkened mind so that suddenly, where before you didn't want Christ, you didn't care about the Gospel, but now suddenly there was a time in your life when that's what you wanted. What caused that turnaround within your own heart so that you came to faith in Jesus Christ? And basically, there's only two answers that you can come up with. And that is, it's either due to the free will of man, or it's due to the free grace of God. 
And when we look at how the, the Gentiles responded and what caused them to respond, we're going to need to interact with the cause of their faith. And that's what we'll be looking primarily at as we study our passage this morning. I remember, and I've shared this quote with you before in the past, but when R.C. Sproul, most everyone is familiar with him, when he was wrestling with the doctrine of election and rejecting it and having hard times with it, it dawned on him that he must believe and preach and teach what the Bible says is true, not what he wants the Bible to say is true. And once that dawned on him, he went back to the Scriptures, I think with a, with a, a willingness by the grace of God to believe whatever it taught, not what he wanted it to teach. And he eventually came to believe that the Scriptures in fact did teach that it's faith comes from a free gift of God. And it's not the work of man's free will, but it's the gift of a sovereign God to those whom He chooses to give it to. So with that in mind, let's begin to look now at how did the Gentiles respond to the Gospel that Paul preached. If you look at verse 48, it says, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the Word of the Lord. Now they are rejoicing. Why? Because many of these Gentiles are some of the God-fearers who had hung around the synagogues. They had kind of adopted the God of Israel as their God. They participated in certain of the rituals of Israel. But they did not submit to, to circumcision. And suddenly they're hearing now that they can have Israel's God and the blessings of Israel's covenants... And they can have all of those blessings without circumcision, without having to, to make the final plunge to become a Jew. And obviously that was, that was exciting to them. That made them joyful that they can have the blessings without the circumcision, which grown men were very hesitant to submit to. And so we can understand that when they began to hear this gospel, the Gentiles began to rejoice. It was the, the joy of their salvation. It was the joy of being forgiven of their sins because the Jews would have looked at them as still being lost or as a second-rate, lower-class citizen in the world to come, if, if that at all. So they were extremely happy with the Gospel of the Apostle Paul. So they're full of joy. I don't know, what, what makes you happy today? Is it making a lot of money? Certainly makes, brings a certain amount of joy into our lives. Uh, winning at a game or a sport or your favorite team or player wins, does that make you happy? Again, it, there's an element of, of happiness there. Helping others, that can make some people happy. What is it that ultimately makes us happy? And the issue that we find here is that they were rejoicing in this new salvation that God had given to them. Do you ever find joy and are you ever happy just because of the awareness that your sins are forgiven? Is that a joy that you consciously experience and express back to God? It should be. 
There are many joys in life, obviously. But the sweetest joy, what should be the deepest joy, is the joy of knowing that me as a sin-cursed, vile sinner who deserves to be thrown in hell have been forgiven of all of my sins by the blood of Christ. And that is a joy that they experienced. And that is a joy that we should experience if we love our Savior and love the gift that He has given to us. I love what Peter writes in 1 Peter 1 when he talks about this uh, living hope that God has given to us. And it's the hope of our inheritance in heaven. And it's an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith. And then Peter goes on to say, and in this salvation, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. But he says, his testimony to those believers is when because of the inheritance that you've been given, because of the salvation that God has given to you, in this you greatly rejoice. Do you ever greatly rejoice in your salvation? See, this is a joy that we can have all the time. This is a joy that's not impacted by whether you have money or you don't have money. This is a joy that's not in any way diminished by your circumstances. It's a joy that is always there because nothing can change your salvation. Nothing can take it away from you. You cannot suddenly become guilty of your sins after you've been forgiven of your sins. It's a joy that every child of God should desire to grow in and experience more. Nehemiah tells us that the joy of the Lord is your strength. And when you do not have that joy, then you become weak and you become spiritually malnourished. Paul reminds us that the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So when was the last time you experienced the joy of your salvation? And some of you, and I'll probably throw my hat in the ring, would say, you know, I'm not sure I can remember. I I think I remember having it once a long time ago. And if that's the case, then we need to pursue that joy. It's a joy that every believer should have. It's a joy that we should have continually to just walk in the, in the glow of the grace of God that has saved us. That's what these believers were doing. These Gentile believers started out with the joy of their salvation. And then notice they were also glorifying the Word of the Lord in verse 48. Their joy was in the Word of the Lord. It was in the Gospel that Paul was preaching to them. They were glorifying the Word of the Lord. Meaning they were honoring Scripture. They were honoring and praising and magnifying the Word of God, the Gospel that Paul was preaching to them. They considered it of exceptional value. They glorified the Word of the Lord. You see, the joy of our salvation is very much tied to the Word of the Lord. Because the two are connected. And if you want more joy in your Christian life, then you need to get more Scripture into your mind and into your heart. They're rejoicing 
and glorifying the word of the Lord because the word of the Lord brought them the preciousness of the gospel. You know, this is what Jesus told his disciples in John 15, verse 11. He said, these things, which he was teaching them about the spirit, about salvation, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Christ wants us to be joyful and He wants our joy to be rooted in the imperishable, inspired Word of God. Because the truths and the promises of Scripture is what undergirds our joy. So if you want more joy, then you need more Scripture in your heart and in your mind. Well, let's read on in verse 48. Not only do they... Do these Gentiles respond in joy and glorifying the word of the Lord? But it goes on to say, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So they also believed. They came to faith in Jesus Christ. Now there are several things about this. Because I think what we find in this passage is that the Spirit of God wants us to understand what caused them to come to faith in Jesus Christ? What caused that? And what we're told in verse 48 is that as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So let's kind of look at this. This is a pretty powerful verse on telling us the cause of faith. Let's uh, look at this word appointed in the New American Standard. What does appoint mean? Uh, And let me just make an initial comment that those who do not like the idea of election want to use other supposed meanings of the word that can weaken this notion of election with the idea of, well, they were disposed to eternal life. They're the ones who believe. So as many as were disposed within themselves to eternal life, they're the ones who came to faith. And basically what I'm going to try to argue and prove to you is that that's impossible. That cannot be the right interpretation of this particular word. Let's uh, just review the actual Greek word here translated appoint or destined or predestined or ordained by most of the uh, Bible versions that uh, you're using, this particular Greek word uh, specifically refers to something that's not being disposed towards an idea, but something that you're actually assigned to by a superior. And there's a lot of verses where this very same Greek word occurs. Uh, Acts 10.42 They testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge, referring to God the Father appointing God the Son to be judge. So this is God appointing. He's he's designating Christ to this position. Christ doesn't appoint Himself. He is designated by God the Father. In Luke 10.1, after this, the Lord appointed 70 others. So this is Jesus Christ 
who calls and appoints the 70 to go out and preach the gospel. And the idea is, is that the, the, the translation appoint or destined or ordained is exactly what this word means. In Acts 22 verse 10, Paul says that when he was converted on the road to Damascus, he went in, saw Ananias, and says, get up and go on to Damascus, and there you will be told all that has been appointed for you to do. All that God has appointed for you, Paul, to do in your ministry, you'll learn it there. But it's God appointed for Paul to do. Then finally, in Romans 13, God uh, raised up these governing authorities and He established them. They are established by God. So the idea that... uh, uh, this word means something that I'm, you know, I'm just disposed within myself to eternal life, so I'm the one who believes. No, it's many people, as many as were appointed or ordained to eternal life, believed. Now, John Stott, who's a New Testament scholar, said some commentators, offended by what they regard as an extreme predestinarian view in this phrase, have tried in various ways to soften it. But the Greek verb tasso means to ordain, sometimes in the sense of assigning someone to a classification. So he says, basically, you cannot get around the predestinarian idea that some have been appointed to eternal life and it's that group of people that actually believed. Well, now let's ask another question of this verb. Who did the appointing? And notice in verse 48, it says, as many as were appointed. And in the Greek, this is a passive voice. Remember your English grammar way back in the day. This is a passive voice, meaning you were acted upon by another agent. You don't do it yourself. You're acted upon. And since God is clearly the one doing the action here, because who can appoint to eternal life other than God Himself? that it clearly means that they were appointed by God. They did not appoint themselves to eternal life. They were appointed by God to eternal life. And they're the ones who believed. It's the same word that's used in Luke chapter 7, verse 8, where the centurion says, I'm a man placed under authority. I've been appointed under authority by my superiors. I didn't appoint myself to be a centurion. My superiors appointed me to be uh, to this position. Same idea in Acts chapter 13. Again, J.A. Alexander, another very conservative commentator, said the violent attempts which have been made to eliminate the doctrine of election or predestination from the verse by rendering the verb disposed can never change the simple fact that wherever this verb occurs elsewhere, it invariably expresses the exertion of power or authority, whether it's divine or human, and being in passive voice cannot denote mere disposition, much less self-determination. Now, that's a long quote to say that the Arminian view would be as many as dispose themselves to eternal life, they're the ones who believe. That's not what Luke is writing. He's saying as many as have been appointed and ordained by God to eternal life, they are the ones who believe. Very much in keeping with the doctrine of election. Now let's ask another question of this verb. When did the appointing take place? 
And now we find out that in the Greek text, this is a perfect tense, which in Greek means it refers to a completed action in the past with results into the present. So they were appointed at some time in the past. And the result of that appointment by God is that they came to faith. So the perfect tense is very clear that this is something that occurred prior to their believing. They were appointed by God before they came to faith. Now, when did God do this appointing? Or when did God ordain them to eternal life? Well, Ephesians 1.4 gives us the answer that He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. So the perfect tense, the completed act of appointing someone to eternal life occurred in eternity past. And the Greek tense fits with that idea perfectly. So when did the appointing take place? When, the, when God decreed election way back before the foundation of the world. Let's ask another question of this verb. What is the result of this appointing to eternal life? Well, look at verse 48 again. As many as have been appointed to eternal life believed. They believed. So what caused their belief? Was it their own free will decision that they made within themselves? Or is it the appointing, ordaining grace of God where God chose them and appointed them to eternal life and that caused their faith? That's the only way you can interpret this in this particular verse. It speaks to the doctrine of election very powerfully very convincingly and very clearly, particularly in the Greek text. F.F. Bruce, another Greek scholar, confirms this. He says, we cannot agree with those who attempt to tone down the predestinarian note of this phrase. There is a papyrus evidence for this verb tasso in the sense of to inscribe or enroll. And the idea of being enrolled in the book of life or the like is found in several biblical passages. In other words, this idea of appointing actually carries the idea to appoint and ordain someone and inscribe it in a book. And that fits exactly with what occurred because we find out in Scripture that there is a Lamb's book of life and names were written in it before the foundation of the world. So this particular verb, I think, really reaches out and captures all those truths, but it definitely confirms the idea of unconditional election. Now what causes these Gentiles to come to faith? Is it their free will? Or is it the free grace of God that appointed them and ordained them before the foundation of the world to come to faith or to receive eternal life? And then that caused them to believe and come to faith when God in time opened their hearts to, to believe. That, I think, is the clear meaning of this passage. And it answers the question ultimately, why did you come to faith? Why does anybody come to faith? Is it my own free will decision? Or is it because God appointed me to eternal life before the foundations of the world, which is the ultimate cause of my coming to faith? He appointed, He ordained me to that. Now, why is, this, why is the doctrine of election necessary? Well, because simply in the New Testament and throughout the Bible, 
uh, the notion of free will, which is very popular. A lot of godly believers today hold to the doctrine of free will. In my opinion, and the opinion of, of many, is not taught in the Bible at all. And you can find uh, just a number of descriptions of, uh, found in Scripture of how do you describe an unbeliever? And does he really have a free will? And just look at how we, we uh, see the unbeliever described in the Word of God. Second Corinthians, he's blinded by Satan. Okay? So he can't see the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Why? Because he's blinded by Satan. Which means you can preach the Gospel to him all day long, but he won't see it. He won't see anything special or glorious about Jesus Christ because he's been blinded by Satan. We also read where Jesus says that all who sin are a slave of sin. Let me ask you something. If you're a slave of sin, how free are you if you're a slave? How can you say that your will is free if you're a slave of sin? And this is Jesus speaking of sinners. All sinners are a slave of sin. All they can do is sin. Where is the freedom? Christ says in John 6 that no one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him. You cannot come. Where is the free will in that? If we really believed in free will and if we had free will then Christ would say, all can come to Me if you just exercise your free will. That's not what He says. He says the opposite. He says no one, universal category, no one can come to Me. They don't have the ability to come to Me. Unless the Father who sent Me draws Him and I will raise Him up on the last day. The one the Father draws, Christ will raise up on the last day. We also read in Jeremiah 17.9 that the heart of man is deceitful and incurable and desperately sick. We also read in Jeremiah 13 that he's unable to change his evil nature. Can the leopard change his spots? Can the Ethiopian change the color of his skin? Neither Neither can you who are accustomed to doing evil do good. You can't change your nature. Where is a free will there? That suddenly I'm going to turn myself from being an unbeliever to a believer and change my nature. How can I do that? We also read in Romans 8 that the mind is hostile. The mind of the natural man or the unbeliever is hostile and rebellious to God. This is what Paul is saying. So if you're hostile and rebellious to God, how are you going to be able to, to exercise a free will supposedly and believe? In 1 Corinthians 2, the natural man considers the things of the Spirit of God as foolishness. Where is the freedom? If I, if I view the Gospel, the things of God as foolishness, what's ever going to change my heart and my mind to see it as the wisdom of God? Can I do that myself? We go on to read that uh, we're captives of Satan in 2 Timothy 2. We're held captive to do His will. How can you break out of that? Can you do that on your own? We also read in Ephesians 2.1 that we're spiritually dead. If I'm spiritually dead in my trespasses and sins, where's my, my spiritual vitality, my freedom of will that I can suddenly resurrect myself and believe in Jesus Christ if I'm spiritually dead? 
Paul says in Romans 3, there's none who seek after God. Well, if I had a free will, couldn't I make that decision? And yet he says there is none. No, not one. Mind of the flesh is death in Romans 8.6. The mind cannot please God. Uh, what, what does it require for us to please God in Hebrews 11? Does anybody remember? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. You've got to have faith. Paul says the natural man, the unbeliever, cannot please God. Why? Because he can't believe. That's why he can't please God. What pleases God? Faith. The natural man cannot please God. Why? Because he can't produce faith within his heart. And he's also in a hopeless condition in Jeremiah 18. He can't change himself. On top of that, we find that the Bible very emphatically teaches that sinners are unable to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And these are verses to me that, that convince me that the, the popular notion of man's free will being the cause of our faith is really a mirage. It's really not there. Again, John 6.44, Jesus says no one can come. And the word come uh, can implies ability. No one has the ability to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Well, if that's again really true, how can someone have free will and make that decision themselves if Christ is so emphatic in saying no one can come? You don't, <clears throat> you don't have the ability to come. Again, in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. He cannot so again, where is the freedom of the mind, the freedom of the will to make that choice? When I cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. It's like you've got a radio and it'll only dial in to the AM frequency and the Gospel's being preached on the FM frequency. Can't understand. Gospel is spiritually appraised. So if you cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God, how is it that anybody can bring about and gin up faith in Christ on their own? And in Romans 8 again, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to. If you're not able to submit yourself to the law of God and come under the conviction of your sin that the law, that's the law's ministry, if you're unwilling to, to submit to the conviction and the condemnation of the law, you'll never see your need for Christ. But the mind of the flesh is hostile. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. And again, those who are in the flesh cannot please God because it cannot produce faith. So it's a popular opinion that ultimately our faith is the choice of our own free will, but that's not what Luke is saying here. He's saying as many as had been appointed to eternal life by God, which is the clear implication, they and they alone are the ones who believe. So let me summarize this from A.W. Pink's book on the sovereignty of God as he discusses Acts 13.48. He makes four points in wrapping up what's being taught here in this verse. Number one, he says, election is the cause of faith, not the result of faith. Now, our Arminian brethren say, well, you know, when I choose Christ by my own free will, and I believe in Christ, then God chooses me. That's not what Luke is saying here. He's saying election 
causes your faith. It's the cause of your faith, not the other way around. As many as have been appointed to eternal life believed. It's those who were appointed were the ones who came to faith. You find that faith is a gift of God and, and many there's a book out in the foyer called The Fountain of Our Faith, God or Man, and it goes over a lot of verses just supporting that faith is a gift of God. Some of them are first Timothy one fourteen. The grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. So what brought about the faith and love in Christ? Well, God's grace, which is more than abundant, brought about the faith and the love. That's God's grace that did that. Acts 11.18, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. God gives it. God gave it to the Gentiles back in Acts chapter 11, referring to Cornelius. God has granted as a gift to the Gentiles repentance. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. And here the word granted refers to a grace gift. It has been graciously given to some two gifts. Faith, believing in Him, and to suffering for Him. Those are the two gifts that God has given, graciously given. So that faith is a gift of God rather than the result of my free will making that decision. The second point that Pink makes is that a limited number are ordained. It says, as many as... That means not everybody was ordained to eternal life, but some were. And as many as were ordained to eternal life, they're the ones who believe. So it's a limited number. Jesus taught this also in Matthew twenty-two fourteen: for many are called, but few are chosen. It's not everybody. It's a limited number are ordained. His third point was election is to salvation, not to service. Because what were they appointed to? Eternal life. So this is an, a predestination, if you will, and appointing to eternal life, to salvation. And those who were appointed by God from before the foundation of the world to eternal life, they're the ones who eventually came to faith. Paul emphasizes that again in 2 Thessalonians 2.13. God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. It's an election unto salvation. And then his fourth point is that all who were ordained will believe. As many as were appointed to eternal life believe. They all came to faith. Christ uh, taught this as well in John 6 verse 37. When he said that all that the Father gives me, this is this number of people that the Father gives to the Son. This would be the elect ones. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And they will come because at a certain point in time in their life, God will send the Holy Spirit who will regenerate their spiritually dead hearts, make them alive spiritually, and draw them irresistibly 
and efficaciously to faith in Jesus Christ. It's all the work of God. That's why everyone who is ordained to eternal life will come to faith at some point in their Christian life. So this is uh, what Luke is teaching. And ultimately, he is telling us what is it that causes for someone to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And I think it's, it's uh, again, it's very popular for people to hold, to embrace the idea of free will today. But I think Luke, in this particular passage, very clearly affirms that it is the work of God, it's the work of God ordaining and appointing some in a previous period, which other scripture would take us back to before the foundation of the world. God chose them, appointed them to eternal life, and they're the ones who came to faith. So Luke, of course, was a traveling companion of Paul. Paul taught this doctrine of election in many places in his writings. You see it echoed in Luke's uh, gospel and also in, in the book of Acts that Luke wrote. And it's a, it seems to be a truth that is uh, found throughout Scripture. So when we come to uh, this, we now look, uh, if you'll move on down to verse 49 quickly. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. So now these people who have been saved by the sovereign grace of God, they have been chosen and appointed before the foundation of the world to eternal life. They heard the gospel. The Spirit of God worked in their hearts. They believed. They're full of joy. They're glorifying the word of the Lord. And they're also sharing that gospel with other people. Verse 49 speaks to the work of evangelism. That the word of the Lord is being spread through the whole region. So that the doctrine of election does not contradict the importance and our responsibility in the area of evangelism and missions. They don't contradict. There's no conflict there at all. In fact, it gives us a lot of courage and boldness to go out and share our faith because we know that God has certain ones out there that He will eventually draw to faith in Jesus Christ. And I tell you what, we should be very thankful for that. Because imagine if you actually believe that another person's salvation was up to you. And you went and you shared the Gospel with someone and in your mind that you need to get it right, and you need to explain the gospel as clearly as you possibly can. You need to be as persuasive as you possibly can. And you need to be able to answer all their questions. And you share the gospel with someone and they don't come to faith. If they die in their unbelief, they're going to go to hell. And if that is ultimately up to you to be able to convince them to believe... Think of the guilt, the burden that you would bear. Because you, should, you could go back and think, you know, they didn't come to faith. You know, what did I say wrong? What could I have done better? How could I have been more persuasive? And you'll carry ultimately their soul on your shoulders because you were not able to convince them or persuade them to come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's a, that's a great burden to bear. And thankfully... The Scriptures do not give us that burden to bear. The salvation is ultimately the work of God. 
And we are still responsible to share the Gospel as clearly and as persuasively as we can. But ultimately, it's not my presentation that saves them. It's the Spirit of God that works that grace of repentance and faith within their hearts and enables them to believe. So that now I can go out and share with boldness and I can entrust the results into the hands of God and not bear the burden thinking that I'm responsible for someone to go to hell because maybe I just didn't present it just as powerfully as I should have. And that whole burden now is lifted. On the other hand, it will, it will help guard your heart from pride because what if that person did come to faith? Well, I saved that soul the other day. I shared the Gospel with them. I talked them into it. They believed. And I, I've told this story before. Years ago, we used to do a state... We used to have a booth at the state fair where we would do evangelism and reaching out to people coming by. And down the hallway from where our booth was, there was another booth that was uh, uh, operated by some other... Uh, I think they were independent Baptists. And I'd go down there and visit with them. They're very Arminian. And I would talk with them and see how they were presenting the Gospel, try to interact with them. And this one guy at the booth, as we were discussing some of these things, said, you know, with this, with this mouth, I've saved 150 people over the last two weeks. And at this point, I'm getting away from this guy waiting for the lightning to, to strike. But he was so proud of his techniques. He was so proud of his ability to share the Gospel in a per persuasive way. And they used a lot of gimmicks in that booth too. And there's a lot of people that prayed a prayer that probably weren't even close to being saved. But he boasted in it. So either the burden of guilt if someone rejects Christ or the false pride of someone who receives Christ as a result of your testimony are both uh, discarded when you understand that ultimately when someone comes to faith, it's the work of God. And we have the joy of sharing Christ and preaching Christ and the Great Commission is still absolutely true. We need to take the Gospel to everyone. And, and we don't know who God is going to save, but we know He has His people out there and we need to faithfully preach the Gospel to everyone. A.W. Pink in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, says the sovereignty of God and grace gives us our only hope of success in evangelism. For it creates the possibility, indeed, the certainty that evangelism will be fruitful. If it's always dependent upon someone's free will, you could just, you could just blank out. I mean, everyone could say no if it's up to their free will. But if the doctrine of election is true, if God has appointed some to eternal life from before the foundation of the world, and at some point in time He will send His Holy Spirit to regenerate and call them into faith and grant them repentance and faith, then we know our evangelism will be successful. We don't know how often. We don't know in what places. But He doesn't tell us that. He just says, go and preach the Gospel and God will do the rest. He'll save those whom He chooses. And then drop back down to verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. 
So now they're going to leave Antioch, Pisidia, and they're going to go down to Iconium. Verse 51, they shook off the dust of their feet and protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with what? Joy. Joy in the Holy Spirit. Joy of their salvation. The joy that God has saved them as Gentiles without having to become a Jew. To have the blessings of forgiveness of sins. To have the indwelling Spirit of God. To have the imputed gift of the very righteousness of Christ. Man, they were joyful in that. Their security in heaven cannot be diminished at all. No one can cause them to lose their salvation. They are full of joy, full of the Holy Spirit, walking in that joy, talking to other people about the gift that they've received. And, and, and it was infectious. And may it be infectious with us as well today. Let, let me close with two practical applications for how this doctrine of election should impact the way you and I live our lives today. The first one is, what should our response be to God? If the doctrine of election is biblical, and if the Bible teaches it, then how should I respond to God for that? And this, this is a great verse. Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, and he says that we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. We should give thanks to God. We should give thanks to God for saving each other. But if, if Paul can give thanks to God for saving the Thessalonians, should we not be thanking God for saving and choosing us as well? Should you not sometimes be overwhelmed with the reality that though I am a sin-cursed, wicked person that deserves to go to hell, God in His mercy and grace unconditionally chose to save me when I did not deserve that. And sometimes the richness and the depth of God's mercy and grace should just so humble me and fill me with praise and thanksgiving to God. I don't know why You chose me, O Lord, but I am so thankful to You that from before the foundation of the world, You chose someone like me to save, to be Your child, to be adopted into Your family. That You chose me when I never would have chosen You. You chose me and saved me. Oh, thank You, Lord, for the doctrine of election for choosing me. See, I think we need to experience that more. If this truth is, is uh, found in Scripture, then it ought to impact my relationship with God. It should humble me and cause me to exalt the grace of God for all that He's done in saving me from my sin. And how should our election impact the way we relate to one another? And Paul makes this point in Colossians 3 when he says, as those writing to the believers at the city of Colossae, as those who have been chosen of God, God chose you. You believers, I want you to understand that you're the chosen of God. And you're holy and beloved. God has chosen you. And this is how you need to live out the the grace of your election. Put on a heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. 
Show the grace of salvation, the grace of election, since you're chosen by God by putting on these, this compassion and kindness and humility as you deal with other believers within the church. Put on that heart of compassion. And he says, bear with one another. You know, sometimes the, the brethren can be irritating. Sometimes we can offend one another. Sometimes we can say things and do things that may hurt our feelings. Or, and, and what Paul is saying, because you are chosen of God, bear with one another. God has borne with you in your sin and rebellion against Him. You bear with one another. And then he adds to that, forgive. Forgive each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. As God chose you and forgave you, show that grace of election. Show that grace of salvation and forgiveness by forgiving other people. Regardless of what they have against you. Regardless of the complaint. Forgive. And you know when you think about it, I think that one of the greatest Christ-like qualities that we can ever seek to develop is the as a heart of forgiving other people who have injured us or abused us or hurt us because that's what Christ did he forgave those who hated him and crucified and and I, it was our sin that put him on the cross and yet he forgave us then finally says because you're the chosen of God beyond all these things put on love which is the perfect bond of unity and this is where the doctrine of election, I think, should have a practical impact. As you begin to realize that you're saved and forgiven and you have this heavenly inheritance, not because of anything that you've done, not because of that you're smarter or better or more spiritual than other people, but because God has chosen you purely by the, the riches of His grace, the glory of His grace, and let that grace be lived out in your love and forgiving, compassionate, gentle nature to other people within the church. So towards God, we ought to overflow with joy and thanksgiving for Him choosing us. Towards one another, let's put on that heart of compassion and live out the grace of God that we have received because God chose us and ordained us to eternal life and caused us to believe. So may God help us to respond to this very deep but powerful truth taught in the book of Acts. So let's close in prayer. Our Father, we do thank You, Lord, that we can grapple and look at uh, this very controversial doctrine that Luke uh, so seems to so clearly lay out in the book of Acts to explain why these Gentiles came to faith. And it wasn't because of a free will choice that they made, but because God had chosen and appointed them before the foundation of the world to eternal life. That was the cause, the ultimate cause of their faith in Jesus Christ, whereby they received the forgiveness of their sins and the gift of righteousness. And Father, I would pray that the Spirit of God would would impress that truth upon our own hearts. And 
There no doubt are some here today that have struggled with this doctrine, that are still investigating it, that may have doubts about it. But Lord, we pray that the Spirit of God would bring us into Your truth and that that truth would have a, a powerful transforming effect upon our life. That You would fill us with more joy. That You would fill us with more thankfulness to You more humility and kindness and and a forgiving spirit towards one another because we are the recipients of Your unmerited grace of election. And so Lord, help us to live it out, to walk in the glory of Your grace. And we'll give You the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.